Servicity came out, the registration opened, and immediately we wanted to do it. My husband and I, we both really are passionate about um, the refugee population, so we decided to volunteer with Connecting Kindness at the Highlands, and we put on a family fun day. Halfway through, Donna, she is the CEO at Connecting Kindness. She came up to me and said, we have this family, they just moved from Turkey, they are Syrian refugees and they arrived in the US 10 days ago. Would you be willing to just walk around with them um, for the rest of the day? I noticed that the youngest was in a child-sized stroller. Turns out the child had cerebral palsy. When I asked if that she had a wheelchair, uh, the mom said, no, we had to leave that in Turkey. I'm a speech therapist by trade, and I've worked in special education a really long time. Um, so I kind of knew what wheelchair she needed and just immediately thought, if I'm not gonna help her, who's gonna help her? I ended up going through a few nonprofits and ended up finding a loaner wheelchair through one of them. 10 days later, we delivered um, the perfect pink wheelchair to their house. In your life, you know, certain things that you do bring you to certain places. We were living in Tokyo, Japan for two years. He was active duty military at the time. Interacting with this family, I had more empathy than I probably would have five years ago uh, because I know what it's like to be an alien in a foreign land. We really saw just the need for further engagement with the refugee population in Nashville. So we have decided to start doing monthly English classes um, with Connecting Kindness at the Highlands. And we just really feel blessed that we were able to be a part of Service City. It just is such a wonderful picture of what the kingdom of God really is. It's making yourself less and serving others. And even with the family, I think they were just in shock that I was able to reach out and help them and get them something so quickly. But that's God's call. And it was such a big picture of what the gospel really is. beautiful expression, the kingdom of God, that we have a God whose heart is that all people would come to know him. Every nation would come to know him and know the hope that only Jesus can offer. And, uh, and as a church, like, that's why we do serve the city, because we are a great commission, great commandment kind of church. When we talk about the great commandment, we're talking about great compassion. Um, Jesus is having a conversation with a, with a lawyer, a religious lawyer back in that day in Matthew chapter 22, he asked the question, teacher or rabbi, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says, you can whittle it on down to this. Love God and love others. Love the God who loves you and love the person that he puts in front of you. That's the great commandment. And that leads us to the great commission. The great commission we find in Matthew chapter 28. We've been looking at it together in this series. We'll spend a few weeks on it. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if you're not holding a Bible in your hands, if you're just reading from the screen, you may have missed the fact that that's the end. 
like, and seen. Like, that's it. That's how the Gospel of Matthew finishes. That's how it concludes with Matthew giving what we would call the Great Commission. It's this final instructions of Jesus at the, at the very end. Jesus gives this, this commandment, this last commandment to the disciples. And Matthew says, for 28 chapters, you can go back and read, for 28 chapters, he's been, he's been saying, we followed him everywhere he went. We heard the greatest teaching that the, world, that the world has ever heard. We saw with our own eyes. We had a front row seat for the miracles. We saw blind eyes open. We saw deaf ears hear. We saw the mute speak. We saw the lame get up. And while we saw Jesus turn, turn funeral processions into family reunions. That he raised the dead, and we saw him. We saw him crucified. We saw him on the cross. We saw him take his body down and put it in a tomb. Three days later, we saw the resurrected Christ. We've seen him. He's alive. For 40 days, Jesus walked around with them, and he taught, and he ate with them. And he said, like, touch my hands, touch my side. And for 40 days, he spent with them. And then he huddles them back up on top of this hill for one last conversation. He pulls them together on top of the hill this one last time. And what does he say? He says, grab an oar, boys. We're rowing to the Titanic. The Titanic's going down, but we're rowing. We're rowing toward the world that is suffering, and we're looking for the lost, and we're looking for the suffering. We're looking for the sick. We're looking for the hurting. We're looking for those who are hopeless. We're looking for those in despair, and we're going on a rescue mission. And there are some people in the world who think that their ship is unsinkable. We're going to them, too. The kingdom of God is for everyone. Take this good news message around the world. Jesus tells them how it's going to happen. He gives the strategy. He calls the play. He pulls them together. He calls the play, and he says, ready, break. You know what to do when you hear ready, break. You go run the play. There is nothing worse than being on the field and hearing ready, break, and not knowing the play. Well, I know this from experience. Like, I'm just telling you, in football, like, when you don't know the play, that's a scary place to be. And, and what we're doing over these weeks together is we're looking at the last play that Jesus called, and we're saying, what does it mean for us as a church to go run the play? For us to be a church that makes Jesus' last command our first priority. For us to be a church that says, we want to be about this life that Jesus calls us to. And at the center of this calling, he says, I want you to make disciples. Once you make disciples. So if you're new here, if you're just checking things out, you picked a great time to jump in because we're reminding ourselves and you'll get a chance to hear over these next few weeks while the kind of hood is up to look around and go, this is what makes us go. This is the heartbeat of our church to help people find and follow Jesus. Jesus says to do that, make disciples. Which when we read that word and read that phrase, make disciples, that should cause us to ask some questions like, what's a disciple? How do you make one? <laughs> and what did Jesus mean when he said the word disciple in his day? You know what a disciple is? Do you know what a Swifty is? <laughs> a Swifty, a, a fan of Taylor Swift, they obsess about the number 13. They love cats. They hate Jake Gyllenhaal. They know all the words to all the songs. You know how to find a Swifty? Just say something bad about Taylor. They will cut you. There are many people who are not with us anymore because they talk bad about Taylor. You know what a Swifty is. Some of you still don't know. That's okay. Um, we know what a Swifty is because of the era in which we live. You see what I did there? Era. 
Ask your neighbor later. Um, <laughs> now, what is a disciple? Well, to understand what a disciple is, we have to go back to first century Judaism. We have to go back and look and see what was a disciple in the ancient world. In the time when Jesus walked the earth, what was a disciple? Now, to get there, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. You can turn there with me. We're going to pick up in verse 18 to see when Jesus called his first disciples. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is a rabbi. And in that time, a rabbi was a traveling itinerant teacher that traveled around from town to town and helped people understand the Torah, helped people understand the scriptures and how they could live the scriptures and live the good life that God had for them, how they could, how they could know God and how they could experience him and how they could please God and how they could follow his word. And so a rabbi would travel around and give his interpretation of the text. Rabbis had shmiha. Go ahead and say that with me. Shmiha. Shmiha is authority. And so a rabbi would be given authority to give an interpretation of the text. And so Jesus, when he says, you've heard it said, but I say, that's shmiha, that's authority. You've heard it said, not to commit adultery, but I tell you, I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Shmiha. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother or sister, you've committed murder in your heart. That's authority. Rabbis had the authority to interpret the text. Rabbis had the authority to give their interpretation, which was called a yoke. A rabbi's interpretation of the scriptures is called their yoke. So if you would follow a rabbi, you would take their yoke. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. In other words, these other rabbis, they want to load you down, but I'm telling you, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's simple. Love God, love others. You can hang it all on those two commands, love God, love others. So Jesus is a rabbi. He's got authority. And rabbis, back in that day, were a really big deal. In the same way that we would think about professional athletes in our days, they thought about rabbis. And, and if you... Um, like with this, it, it has a lot to do with the educational system of the day, and, and, and maybe we don't know a whole lot about that. That's why I really love what historian Ray Vanderlaan, how he's put some things together. You can go and you can Google Ray Vanderlaan, um, or you can Google this, that the world may know. And you can go along, if you get out on this like I do, you can go and you can read about this. But the educational system in the day is interesting. When a child was five years old, they'd go to synagogue school so that they could learn Hebrew and the Torah. And they would begin to memorize the Torah at five years old. Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Memorized. Memorized. Because the hater's gonna, and the player's gonna, and I knew you were trouble when you, in the same way we know Taylor, they knew Torah. Children memorized. 
Before a Jewish teenager was 13, which would be the bar mitzvah, most Jewish teenagers would have memorized Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Pretty much the whole Old Testament memorized. If you were exceptionally gifted at understanding Torah and the scriptures and memorizing them, you could go on to the next level. Those who were not, they would be blessed by the teacher and say, basically, go home. Go home and go home and learn the trade of your father. Go home to the family business. Go be an apprentice with your dad. But the ones who were the best of the best, the cream of the crop, they would go next level. Now, next level would be to study with a rabbi. So they would apply to a rabbi in the same way that many people would apply to like an Ivy League school, or some people would apply to an Ivy League, not this people, would apply to an Ivy League school. And they would go to a rabbi, and they would ask to follow that rabbi. They would ask to follow the rabbi, and the rabbi would ask them some questions, kind of do an interview, see how well they know the text, see how well they understand the scriptures. And if they had what it took, the rabbi would say, come follow me. Now, Back to the story, back to the text. When Jesus calls those first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, what are they doing? Fishing. Who are they fishing with? Their dad. What does that mean? They didn't make the cut. Anybody else not made the cut before? They weren't the best of the best. They were either um, dropouts or failouts. Somewhere along the line, somebody said, you can't go next level, and said they went home to the family business. So they're fishing with their dad, and Jesus comes along, and he chooses them. What does this say about our Messiah? What does this say about our God? What does this say about Jesus and that the ones that he looks for are the ones that other people overlooked? What does it say about God that, that he picks the ones who have been told that they're not good enough? What, is the one, what does it say about Jesus that he looks for the misfits and the ragamuffins and the strugglers and those with habits and hurts and hangups? And Jesus seeks them out and says, come follow me. They didn't go to Jesus and say, can I be a disciple? Jesus looked at them and said, come follow me. What does this say about the love of our God that these disciples were not qualified based on their behavior? They were invited in based on the love of God. Jesus invites us, and it's this invitation to discipleship. To be a disciple would be, the Hebrew word there is talmudim. It means to be a student or a learner. And for a rabbi to, to invite a student or a learner to follow, it's essentially saying, I believe that you can be like me. Now, I'm going to tell you, I read this story my whole life, and most of the time I would read this story, and I would say, oh, poor Zebedee. If Zebedee's hanging, I would just see him just sad dad. Just so sad because his boys, they left. Like, I could just see him like painting over the boat where it used to say Zebedee and Sons, and now it's just Zebedee. <laughs> but I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think Zebedee is happy. He's at the map code the next day. He said, Joe, did you hear about my boys? Tom and Dean. Rabbi Jesus. You know, can you see that? Like there's joy in the father's heart that his, his children have been picked, have been chosen to be disciples. You need to know you've been picked, you've been chosen to be a disciple of Jesus. That his invitation is that you would know him. This is the invitation of God. And when we go back and we look at the story, like it's just hard for us. I think it's hard for us to grasp, to understand what a big deal this is to get an invitation. That a rabbi would look at them and say, come follow me. 
I think we miss how, how huge this is that Jesus invited them and in saying, I believe you can be like me. When Jesus looks at you, he says, I believe you can be like me, not because you're so good, but because of his spirit at work in your life to transform you and change you from the inside out. This is discipleship. Discipleship is being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. That's the definition of discipleship, the essence of discipleship. We can just go back to one verse in this passage. Verse 19, it says, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There are three parts to this verse. The first is invitation. Follow me. The second is transformation. I will make you. The third is replication, fishers of men. Invitation, come follow me. Transformation, I will make you replication or multiplication, fishers of men. So let's just break it down. Let's just work through this together. The first is invitation. Follow me. Jesus' invitation for these disciples was follow me, not follow a list, not follow these rules, not follow some advice. It's follow me. The invitation of God is always to a relationship. It's what God wants most from you, that you would have a relationship with him, not religion, but a relationship, that you would know him, that you would know him. It's the reason Jesus came. It's the reason that he lived a perfect life, which we cannot live on. We cannot live a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life, laid his life down on the cross, was raised from the dead so that you could be reconciled with God, so that you could have a relationship with him. It's what he wants most is that you would follow him. Jesus came that we would have eternal life. He said, I've come that you might have eternal life. What's eternal life? He tells us in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, now this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is this, that we would know God. Eternal life begins the moment you say yes to Christ. The moment you surrender your life, that's when eternal. We don't have to wait for eternal life till we die. Eternal life begins now. It starts the moment we say yes to Jesus. The spirit of God comes and dwells inside of us, and we begin the eternal kind of life. We begin to live in the kingdom of God. So that's the invitation. Jesus said, the invitation is to follow. Now, when we think of follow, we think of pushing a little button on our phones that says, you know what? I'm going to kind of follow along and see random obscure pictures of you if you post time to time on Instagram or on social media and find out kind of your hot take on social issues. Or maybe I'm just going to see you and your dog, Max, or what you grilled over the weekend. You know, we just kind of, we know, if we think if we follow somebody, there's this random occasional kind of, kind of keeping up with them to follow in Jesus' day. Was to, was to leave everything behind and to devote oneself to follow that rabbi. It, it looks less like Instagram, more like the maintenance man. I learned what it means to follow when I was seven years old from a maintenance man. His name was Mr. Miyagi. 1984, the movie Karate Kid. Daniel LaRusso moved over from, moved from uh, Jersey, moved to L.A., and he was getting beat up, and the apartment complex manager saw him there, the maintenance man. He saw him, and he began. He said, I'll take you under my wing. I'll teach you. I'll instruct you in the ways of karate. And he, uh, he had this conversation with him, and he said this. He said, let's make a sacred pact. I teach karate. That's my part. You promise to learn. I say you do. No questions. That's your part. Deal? Mr. Miyagi makes him wax on, wax off. He makes him paint the fence. He makes him sand the floors. And Daniel thinks, Daniel's son, thinks he's just doing menial chores. 
But really what's happening is a champion is being formed. That's discipleship. That we've, Jesus comes to us and he invites us. He says, I want you to follow me. I want you to do as I say. He invites us into this sacred pact. I teach life. That's my part. You promise to learn. That's your part. I say you do. Deal? Deal. Now, here's the difference between Mr. Miyagi and Jesus. There are a couple. Um, there are a lot of differences between. But Mr. Miyagi says no questions, and I want you to know Jesus can handle your questions. He is secure enough in his sovereignty to handle your questions. You can bring your, in fact, he wants you to bring your questions to him. He's big enough for your questions. But he invites us into this life of discipleship, of following, of following him. And did you notice in the story, Jesus calls them to follow and they drop their nets and they leave their boat. Why? Because Jesus is their rabbi. Talmudim do what their rabbi says. This is their first act of obedience to drop their nets. I wonder how many of us have called Jesus our rabbi, called him Lord, called him Savior, called him King, called him Messiah, called him CEO, called him the leader of our lives, but yet we've kind of balked on the first thing he's asked us to do. I wonder if the disciples that Jesus said, drop your nets, and they're like, Jesus, what do you mean by nets in the original language? <laughs> like, if I go to blueletterbible.com and I look up the word in Aramaic or in Hebrew, um, nets, like, what does that really mean? Were they looking for loopholes? <laughs> Were they trying to negotiate? Like, Jesus, can I just keep a little net? Can I put it in my pocket? Like, Jesus said, leave everything and follow me. This is their first act of obedience. The invitation was to follow. A disciple is a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And so to help us think about this, I want us to look at like a discipleship continuum. I want us to think about this. If you're taking notes, you can kind of draw this out. I think this might be helpful for us as a way to just kind of frame up this movement from invitation to transformation to replication. So we could say there's a continuum. You can just take a line, you can start a point, and then just draw it all the way. And this just continues on. And you can just write some numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. It just continues on, 11, 12, all the way on into infinity. And so there's this there's this continuation or this continuum of discipleship. And so we could say one on this, on this scale, just for an example, would be like disinterested. And this would be somebody who said, you know what, I'm closed to faith conversations. I'm, I'm closed to, to, to exploring who God is, maybe because of um, things that they've heard or maybe to things that they've seen or maybe negative experience with church or with, or with, uh, with some Christians or with religion. And they're, they're just, they're closed. They're disinterested to a conversation about faith. Second, there, there would be people who I, I, you could say, like, they're open. They're open, maybe skeptical, but they're open to faith conversations. They're, they're just kind of in the crowd. They're checking things out, just kind of hanging back. They're internally processing questions, maybe not verbalizing the questions, but internally processing um, the truths about Jesus and, and who he is. The next would be a seeker. And a seeker, you could say, would be a person who's asking questions. They're, they're verbally processing that questions in a, in a, in a group with some other believers I mean, seekers, they're the ones showing up, and they're, um, they're seeking things out. Maybe they're looking for resources, looking for books, um, maybe praying a prayer like, God, if you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? This is the activity of seeker. And then the next we could say is, um, is admirer. And this would be a person who would begin to, to um, have a mental assent to these truths about Jesus. They go, you know, I admire Jesus. I value Jesus. Um, maybe even praise Jesus, um, beginning to believe who he is in that place of, um, and maybe even applaud Jesus, impressed by Jesus. 
Um, that would be admiration. Then the next step, and this is a critical next step, the next step would be a follower of Jesus. That'd be somebody who'd go, you know what, I want to devote my life to, to follow Jesus. I give him my life. This is a process of, of, of surrender. An old word for this would be conversion. This would be a moment, Jesus used the phrase born again. This is a moment when a person commits their life to Jesus, and it's at that moment they experience salvation, they experience new life. God puts a new heart in them, deposits his spirit inside of them that enables them to continue to move forward in this continuum. And to move forward, like, God, I want to know you, and I, I want to listen to you, and I want to grow in you, and I want to learn from you, and I, I belong to you, and I want to belong in, in community with other believers, and I'll be practicing what you, what you teach, and I'll be believing the things that you say, and being like you, and, and doing what you say. So there's this ongoing growth that happens over time, this transformation. And that's what we see in the story, the process of transformation. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you, not you will make you, not you will become. He says, I will make you. It's the active role of God in transforming us and changing us. It's our participation with God in the process where he begins to move furniture around in our heart. And he begins to make, change our desires and change our affections and, and change the things that we want. He begins to change and we bring him our, our habits and our hurts and our, and our hangups and we bring those things to him. And he begins to bring healing for places of our past, give us hope for a future and give us new perspective in life. And it, we're, we're not who we used to be. Like there's this change that takes, takes place in our lives, a transformation. I want you to see it doesn't happen by ourselves on Friday, I was running in the neighborhood, and as I got to the turn, I saw there was a bobcat that was out there, like, mulching, kind of um, bush-hogging, section of the woods, cutting down some vines, and I, I, he stopped when I, when I ran. Then when I came back around, you know, after a really long run later, um, came back around, um, that was a weird flex, but then I came back three miles, not that far, but then I came back, and I saw him, and, and he was out of the bobcat, and he was just kind of standing there, like, admiring his work. And so I was just, I felt like a prompt or a nudge to talk to him. It may have been the Holy Spirit. It may have been I was tired of running, but I stopped. And I just, um, I, I started asking him, man, what are you doing out here? How, how's it going? And he said, yeah. He said, I've got hired by the HOA to come and to, to cut down some of this overgrowth. He said, because these vines, like they, uh, they, they kill the good trees. He said, so I'm cutting them back. I said, man, I said, thanks, for, thanks for doing that. And, uh, and then I looked and I saw his hat and his hat said, combat veteran, uh, purple heart. And, uh, and so I was just asking him, I was just, thank you for, thank you for your service, and man, tell me, your, tell me your story, man. He started to open up, and he told me about how in Iraq he had sustained some injuries, and then, um, and then I mean, I said, how are you doing, how are you doing now? Like, man, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I said, are you a spiritual person? And he kind of lit up. He said, yeah, he said, I wouldn't be here without Jesus. I said, man, he's changed my life. He said, I came back from active duty, and I was in, moved to Thompson Station, and there was a man named Sam, um, he said, uh, who shared with me about Jesus. He said, my wife was praying for me, but a man named Sam shared with me. Was, you wouldn't believe how many stories as a pastor go back to somebody who had a praying wife. So she was praying for me. I met Sam. Sam told me about Jesus, ended up giving my life to Jesus. He said, he's changed me. And I expected him to say, Sam's changed me. He said, Jesus has changed me. He said, he's, trans he's changed my life. I'm a different man. I've got love now that I didn't have before. I have joy now. He said, I actually want to help people. He said, I used to just want to beat people's. 
He said, but now, like, I'm, he said, I'm a different, he said, I want to be a different person from my family, a different person from my wife, a different person from my kids. He said, I am a different person. He's changed me. And now he didn't know that I was a pastor. He didn't know that he was helping me write the message. <laughs> I thought, what a picture of discipleship. This invitation to a relationship with Jesus Christ, he changes us and he transforms us. Romans calls this, Romans talks about this and says we are being conformed into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says we are moving from glory to glory. John chapter 15, Jesus says that God is the, the father, is the master gardener, and that he's pruning these things from our lives so that we can bear more fruit. And sometimes it's pruning shears and other times it's a bush hog. But God's at work in our lives. He's transforming us from the inside out. Religion is trying to bring about change from the outside in. The transformation we're talking about is through a relationship with Jesus Christ where he changes us. That's discipleship from the inside out, and it happens over time. The next stage is replication or multiplication. Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. He's, like, he's, telling, these, he's telling these disciples, he's like, I'm going to teach you how to have a life that matters. I'm going to give you significance and purpose. I'm going to help your, your life matter more than just fishing. There's going to be more to it than that. I'm going to teach you how to, how to make a difference in the lives of others, where there's going to be more to your life than just paying the bills and cutting grass. And if your team won on Saturday, there will be, there's going to be more to life than trying to find the next show to binge on Netflix or for to find your next buzz. I'm going to give you meaning and purpose for your life, that your life is not going to be a cul-de-sac, but it's going to be an intersection, and you're going to help people find life. He says, I want to help you be a part of that life. And so he gives them this, this call, and he says, come and follow me, and I'm going to teach you how to, how to make disciples. You remember Sam in the story? My friend with the bush hog, he remembers Sam. Sam was a person that God put in his life to help him take one more step. That's how I want you to think about discipleship. The discipleship is helping people take one more step. But if we go back to the continuum, continuum and think about it this way, if we're going to be a church that makes disciples, it's going to require all of us taking steps and helping other people take steps. It's, it's looking where you're at in the journey, in your faith journey, and it's just going back and looking back for somebody else and just tell, helping them take one more step. It might be through serve the city that God uses that to help somebody who's disinterested so they don't want anything to do with God, anything to do with faith. And it's through you serving that God uses that to help them move from a one to a two. Or maybe through serving in kids or students that God would use your life to help a teen open up their heart to the gospel to move to a place from a two to a three. Or leading a group, actually being involved in leading a group or having a conversation at work that helps somebody move from a three to a four. It could be just sending a text, a note of encouragement, or praying with a neighbor that helps them move from, from seeker to admirer. Or maybe it's through a conversation with one of your kids or inviting a friend to church where you're able to be a part of them moving from admirer to follower. See, it's all of us just helping people take one more step. One more step in faith. And we want to make memories with kids. If you have kids, I know, like this, this why like we want to make memories. We want to make memories, but the only thing that trumps making memories is making disciples. And we aren't supposed to do that by ourselves. We're supposed to do that in community. That's why we have kids and students here as a church partnering with parents, saying we're in this together to make disciples in the next generation. And as a church, if we're going to make disciples 
is going to require all of us saying, God, how would you want to use my life to make disciples? And this can be so intimidating. You know why? Because we're messed up people. Look at the person next to you and say, I'm messed up. Look back at him and say, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all messed up. It's why we need the grace of God. But God uses messed up, broken people because it's the only kind of people there are. And I can look at that continuum and I can go, I can go you know what? I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. Sometimes I can get overwhelmed by the gap between where I'm at and where I want to be. But sometimes it helps just to look back at the gain and look and see where God has brought me. And I'm not who I used to be. And chances are you aren't either. My question is, are you going to let that stay on the shelf? Are you going to take the gain in your life and go, God, how would you want to use my life? The pain, the heartache, the circumstances, the things that you brought me through. How would you use that and invest it into your kingdom? And if you don't disciple somebody else, if you don't help somebody else, it will die with you. I don't want anything to be buried in the ground. I want to use it for his kingdom so that that goes on forever. That's the beauty of discipleship. It's what Jesus calls us to. Maybe you hear that and you're like, I can't do that. You're right, you can't. But he can. In you and through you begins with saying, God, how would you want to use my life? Maybe even before that, it goes back to asking the question, God, who have you used in my life? I want you to think back. Who's somebody that God has used to help you take one more step in your relationship with Jesus? Maybe it was a teacher or a coach or a parent or a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a friend, a coworker. Who was somebody that God intersected with your life who helped you take one more step? What if you just took a moment this week and just said thank you? Maybe you wrote them a note, wrote them a letter, sent them a text, looked them up to say thank you. Maybe they're no longer living. Maybe you've been just thanking God that he sovereignly placed them in your life and they said yes. But you know in scripture in Hebrews it says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Who is that great cloud of witnesses? I believe it's those who have gone before us, those who have invested in our lives. Maybe today is just saying, God, thank you, and naming their name, giving thanks to him for them. And one of the ways we continue that forward is we ask the question, God, who have you put around me who's far from you, who needs to know the hope that Jesus offers? Or maybe somebody that you put around me who used to walk with you but has drifted in their faith. Or maybe somebody who, if I just look back, I see there was a time when I was there. How can I help them take a next step? What is a practical thing, God, that I can do to help encourage somebody else to take a next step? And you'll be surprised how the Holy Spirit will bring names and faces to your mind because this is, this is the heart of God. It's the heart of God. Maybe today for you is to take a step of faith. Maybe you've been hanging around in admirer, and it's time today to say yes to his invitation where he says, follow me, and you say yes. Who's somebody who's helped disciple you? Who's somebody that he would have you help take a next step? This is the play. We're sitting here today because people before us have run the play. 
And so is us coming together and saying, ready, break. And after you say, ready, break, you run the play. So I want to invite Pastor Darren, if you come on up. I want to invite Pastor Darren to come up and, and close us in prayer. And then that we would do the ready, break together and go run the play. So I just encourage you where you are before we end this moment um, to turn that inward. And so if you're, if you're comfortable, if you, just, if you close your eyes with me, I, just, I would just ask you to open, open your hands. This helps me open my heart to God. And so, Lord, I thank you that your love for us is, is one person at a time and that you love each of us 100%. And I, I would just encourage you right now just to, to, ask, to ask God, like, where, where am I on that continuum? Just you and him. And there's, there's no shame with God, but just to ask him. Maybe you, maybe you get a number in your heart. <laughs> and then I would I'd just like for you to ask yourself, where, where, would, where would I like to be? Where would I like to be in my faith? Or what's possible in my life? Like what might God do in my life? Where would I like to be? And, and what I want you to hold on to today is, is that you are as close to God as you want to be. Like that the invitation is here because God loves you like that. And so maybe for the hundredth time for some of us, or maybe for some of us for the very first time that you could, that you could place your faith in Jesus and say, God, I need you. I need you. I can't live the life that I wanna live by myself. Like, that's clear for me. And so today, I place my faith in you. I place my faith in you and I receive from you a, a calling, a sense of purpose for life, something bigger than me. And, and I want a part to play. And I want to live, I want to live that out. And so, Lord, would you, would you come alive in my heart? Would you give me that sense of purpose? And we make that our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. What a special time together. If you'll do this with me before we leave, if you'll stand and before we head out, I want you to know our prayer team will be down front. We'd love to process what God is doing in your heart. But I think as we lean in to serve the city, I would be doing a Pastor Kevin a, a disservice if I didn't have a moment like this. As we go in to serve and say, I want to see you serve. See what God can do through your life. So let's try something we've never done before. If you'll just put a hand in, we're going to break it down. I'm not doing it until I see everybody. Here we go. All right, serve the city on Saturday. Get signed up. Here we go. Three, two, one. Serve the city. That went great. All right, we'll see you there. We'll see you there.